Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the proposal to defund the police, and then we're going to talk to Ricky Brown, pastor of New Creation Church in Chicago. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, as always, remember you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. And find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who listen on the podcast. Mr. Simpkins, how are we today, friend? I'm feeling pretty winded. I went for a run, and it was way windier than I thought it would. That was not meant to be a pun. <laughs> but, but it's true. I, yes. my, my boy woke up early, so I was like, yeah, throw him in the jogger. I can do it. And I'm like, I'm running with a sail right now. That is, this is not a good idea. I remember back when our kids were in strollers and trying to run with strollers. That is no joke. I, even though they call them jogger strollers, that, that never made it any easier. <laughs> no, not not in the slightest. Not for me, at least. I'm sure for plenty of people, it's wonderful. For people who like to jog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But anyway, we're glad that you're with us today. And uh, the last couple days, and we're going to have more pastors on with us today, but one of my favorite things, Ian, over the last week or two uh, is it has been so beneficial for me personally. I hope it's been beneficial for all of our listeners uh, as we've listened to pastor after pastor. Like, I feel like uh, you especially, but you and I said when all of this started with George Floyd, his killing and everything, we said we want to listen. Uh, and we've had the opportunity to listen to many uh, African-American pastors from the city of Chicago and the suburbs over the last couple weeks. Uh, and it's been so beneficial. And today, uh, later on this hour, we're going to hear from Ricky Brown, pastor of New Creation Church mm-hmm. in Chicago, that we are looking forward to. But one thing that has struck me has been <clears throat> over and over again, this conversation we've had with various pastors about what's next. Like after the protests died down, uh, after um, things kind of go back to air quotes, quote unquote, normal, uh, what's next? What What is going to happen? And I wanted to jump into the deep end of the pool a little bit here with two articles, one from CNN and one from The Atlantic, that talk about something that you're probably hearing a lot about right now, and that's defunding the police. Uh, That's defunding the police. And so before we jump into the articles, uh, wondering just, uh, I'm learning, I don't even know necessarily what that means, wondering how you've been kind of processing the increasing call from a lot of the protesters about defunding the police. Well, one thing seems really obvious is that there's a lot of misinformation about what that actually means. That's right. And of course, it you know, it only takes a, a hot second for all the memes to come out. <laughs> Some of them are ignorant. Others are like downright offensive. And I think that that's part of what's making some of it tricky. Again, you know, when I first heard the phrase, I had obviously all sorts of questions. It's again, another thing that I have appreciated about this show. I'm like, okay, all right, let me do some research to figure out what this actually means, what we're actually proposing. Because a lot of the memes seem to imply like, well, sorry, next time there's a murder in your neighborhood, better have the bus boy pick them up or something. You know what I mean? Like it's just really crass and really, um, I mean, not that memes have ever really in the history of the world been helpful, but it feels like around this topic (laughs) in particular, there seems to be a lot of like unhelpful, memification going on. So I'm glad I'm glad we're uh, conducting a segment on this. 
Yeah. So at CNN the other day, they had an article about how it's obviously much the way uh, the, the spark of all of this conversation was the murder of George Floyd happened in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is now the first city since then that's taken a step here. Nine members of the Minneapolis City Council on Sunday announced they intend to defund and dismantle the city's police department. They said, We've committed to dismantling policing as we know it in the city of Minneapolis and to rebuild with our community a new model of public safety that actually keeps our community safe. Uh, And I gotta be honest, like you, when I first heard this phrase being thrown around, defund the police, I actually talked to some of my kids and I was like, I'm not for this defunding of the police. We need the police. Most of the police are good. Had that talk. But this article out of The Atlantic uh, entitled, uh, defund the police. America needs to rethink its priorities, kind of looking at what is this defunding of the police kind of helps give it a little bit more nuance. When you've read what it actually means when people are saying defund the police, uh, what's kind of what are people in your understanding saying right now? Well, I think a lot of the consensus is that historically, for probably far too long, the police have been expected to do all sorts of things that they're not actually trained to do. We've probably expected too much of them, which is a problem both for the police officers, but also the community. Like I saw somebody post again, it's not really a meme, but it is a a short image that kind of explains it. It says hashtag defund the police does not mean eliminate all police funding. Defund the police means police will be funded. It also means that police will not be overfunded and that they'll redistribute the city budget. Everyone gets a fair share. Defund the police because police should focus on crimes and criminals. They're not mental health counselors. They're not social workers. They're not medical professionals. They're not specialists. They should not be responsible for everything. And so then they go on to say, defund the police emphasizes our values, our communities, our people, our schools, our hospitals, our services, our infrastructure. Understand that presenting defund the police as the same as eliminating all funds for the police is intentionally misleading and manipulative. So... This one person's meme does certainly kind of go after like, hey, we got to stop the rhetoric that that's what this is actually proposing. Yeah. And uh, I'm reading in the Atlantic article, it says, what might this mean in practice? Not just smaller budgets and fewer officers, though many activists, many activists advocate for that. It would mean ending mass incarceration, cash bail, fines and fees, policing uh, and police militarization as well as getting cops out of the school. It would also mean funding housing. So it's trying to look at how do we fund initiatives that maybe uh, hopefully help within communities, whether it be schools or after school programs or uh, counseling or whatever else that could help uh, before there's crime and before there's all of this. Um, It did, man, like you, when I first heard defund the police, though, I read it as get rid of all the police. And I was like, this is the worst idea ever. And I would say this is another uh, example of needing to actually read stuff, right? Not getting all of your information and policy from social media, say, or like you said, from memes, uh, but reading and reading across kind of uh, different viewpoints, because, uh, you know, my best friend's a police officer. I've, I, I tend to be pretty pro police just in my background. But yet, as I've read this, a lot of it makes a lot of sense. And you highlighted something. It actually seems like it would allow for the police to focus on what the police actually were called and seem to want to focus on instead of trying to fit them in all these different things that maybe they're just not trained to do. Right. And I think that that's probably a much larger, more nuanced discussion than either you or I. Like, again, in the spirit of 
a conversation around not expecting people to have to carry the burden of a thousand different things that they're not trained to do. You and I should probably also be careful too about (laughs) not weighing in on, I'm sure someone listening right now, like you don't really understand police force or you don't really understand city funding. And I would say, you're right. We we really don't. I'm reading a couple other articles here. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to really be equal in like where I'm getting these sources from. Like you, Brian, I have a number of dear friends who are on the police force. And I also have a number of dear friends who are like leading protests right now. And they would not agree on the best, the best foot forward here. And I think uh, it is an important, it's a really important discussion. And I would, at the very least, if we don't accomplish anything in this segment, other than defund the police by and large does not mean eliminate all police officers. That's not what it's saying. That's right. So uh, as Ian said, one of the weird things about being pastors who have a radio show where you're paid to talk is a lot of times you don't feel like you know what to talk about, like how to say it. But if for nothing else, then to put this on your plate to go go to our Facebook page and read the article from The Atlantic and wrestle with it and let us know what you think. Uh, We want to continue that conversation. You can do that on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Ricky Brown, the pastor of New Creation Church in Chicago. He's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You know, one of the things Ian and I have been talking about over the last couple weeks is just that we want to take a posture of listening and particularly have on uh, lots of pastors that we can just have a conversation with. Uh, and we've had the opportunity to do that over the last two or three weeks. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined by the pastor of New Creation Church in Chicago, Pastor Ricky Brown. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Uh, appreciate the work you're doing for God's kingdom. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Well, we, we are really grateful for you doing it. Could you uh, introduce yourself again? I know you've been on the show before, but why don't you introduce yourself again to our audience? Well, my name is Ricky Brown. Uh, I'm the founder and lead pastor of New Creation Church uh, in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. Uh, we are a multi-ethnic intergenerational church. We launched uh, September of 2018. And uh, uh most important thing I can tell you about the church, besides the fact that we're centered on the gospel and, and love Jesus, is that uh, 70% of the people who attend our church were not connected to a church before we launched. Wow. So uh, normally, according to Stadia, um, which is a great church planning organization that I partner with, when a new church is launched, about 42% are unchurched, but, but our church is at 70, and that's just answer prayer, because we sincerely wanted to plant a church that reached people who did not go to church, mm-hmm. and other than that, I am a professional lasagna eater. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be that. <laughs> you're also being yeah, modest, absolutely. though. You're a lover of fedoras, and I happen to know that you're an incredible saxophone player as well, if, uh, if, I, do, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Yeah. Ian, I've I've learned to hold it correctly. If you hold it while you look like you're jamming. <laughs> I do the same with drumsticks. It has the exact same effect, my man. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, Ricky, you're a friend of community, and so I have the benefit of, of knowing you personally and following you on social media. And I'd love, just as we're kind of diving into the weeds of this discussion, what has the last two or three weeks been like for you as you're pastoring in your community? 
Wow. Well, um, it's been like uh, something called wind shear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got a chance to fulfill a childhood dream of becoming a pilot. And there's a weather phenomenon called wind shear that is very serious because it'll it'll take an airplane down. Uh, wind shear happens right when you're low and slow, mm. right above the one way. Mm. And you get these really hard winds in competing or opposite directions acting on the air force of the aircraft. And the most skilled pilot sometimes cannot overcome it because wow. it's just so weird. Mm. And so pastoring over the past couple of weeks for me has been like wind shear because we were just uh, – making adjustments and corrections in our landing <laughs> right, right. and and then bam here we are with yet another um uh evil you know uncovered and rising to the top in our in our nation and um my, my friend albert tate has been saying this uh i gotta i gotta give him credit <laughs> we've we, we everyone has been trying not to get exposed to covid but COVID has been exposing us. Ooh, mm. that's good. That's good. That's really And, you good. know, it, it's so good that I had to, I had to give him credit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. You yeah. know, if, yeah. if it's still a mediocre quote, uh, it could fly. But, you yeah. know. <laughs> as, but, as, but listen, but seriously, though, it's just a thing where COVID has exposed our different idolatries that mm-hmm. we, we share and I feel like in our country they were exposed a little differently than other countries. Mm. And then um and then now um just just the country at a at a tipping point and boiling point uh with the death of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor. So uh yeah, a lot like one shift. Yeah. I appreciate that imagery, Ricky. I'm curious, uh, what has the conversation been like in your church specifically the last couple of weeks since the death of George Floyd? So, so I'm glad you asked that. Um, my context is that of people who, hey, hey, hey first, Hyde Park is very academic. Mm-hmm. Hyde Park is very, very, if I could use the L word, liberal. Mm-hmm. So many of the churches in my community, you know, they're, they're pastor of people in a, in a, in a same-sex marriage. Mm. That's, that's the context of Hyde Park. Uh, we're definitely the unicorn when it comes to uh, being Bible-centered, you know, uh, centered on the gospel, theologically orthodox, those things like that. Uh, myself and about three or four other churches uh, that have been there much longer than we have. Mm. Um, and so that's the context. So the problem is, in higher parts, they're super justice-oriented, mm-hmm. but the people that are leading the conversations are not believers. So uh, it's interesting, man. I've got white people in my church that are like, uh, we haven't marched yet. <laughs> yet. I mean, like, what are we waiting on? So, uh, and, and we finally did, you know, do something along those lines once we felt the right environment mm. for us to let our voice be heard. But mm. yeah, man, it, it, for, for, for us, um, just think about that context in which I'm pastoring in. These people are some of the most, uh, I mean, uh, President Obama, I mean, that's, this is his neighborhood. These right. people are some of the most justice, uh, you know, oriented and will fight for right more than anyone, but 
these conversations are are by and large not led by people who are Christians, which is mm-hmm. a, a great problem. Okay, so something I know about you in particular is that you're a networker, but I think even more importantly, you're a you're a bridge builder, and you kind of touched on it back there. And I think it's a topic that's on everyone's minds if you've hopped on Facebook at all in the last month. Is that we're all kind mm-hmm. of at each other's throats. There's a lot of disagreement, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of you know, a lot of partisanship. How how do you, as a pastor, or even just as a Christ follower, not just sort of like navigate the mess, but like actively work to build bridges between people groups that maybe don't always agree? We, we need to follow the Bible. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, ho- holy. Uh, scripture, you know, exhorts us to be slow to anger and quick to hear hmm. and quick to listen. Uh, I just read a- an amazing article written by someone who is the executive director of a not-for-profit that helps uh, girls who or women who get pregnant out of wedlock with resources and different things like that. Hmm. Uh, they're believers, so they're naturally trying to prevent abortion um, a very different way than the person who only wants to prevent it by making it illegal. And so when you look at the the statistics, if 75% of people who get an abortion are poor, hmm. then let's look at the root cause. I absolutely believe in the sanctity of life. And that, um, and, and, and that abortion is, is, is sinful, it is wrong. Um, but if, if people would listen, just listen to, as to why the situation is what it is, mm. then we could go, oh man, you know what? I want to be pro-life from womb to tomb, mm. not just, not just, not just pro-birth. Right. Uh, and I think it goes the same way with uh, racial uh, reconciliation. We're we're quick to anger, and we're we're and we're we're very slow to listen. Uh, mm. I was so blessed to be with John Peacock for several Tuesdays, mm-hmm. and Alvin Bibb, um on on their on their live show, and I just sh- told some of my stories as a a black man in America, the the type of talks and the type of experiences. I have had, and though John and I were friends, you know, I could tell that he was like, man, right. I, I'm so sorry that those type of things have, have happened to you. Um, and I, and I really, I'll, and I'll land on this. I really think that it is a plot of the enemy to keep the body of Christ divided. Mm-hmm. We know that the only answer for the human condition is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not laws. It's not at the end of the day protest, even though those are helpful. Uh, it's not any of this. It's racism is a sin issue. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sexual sin is a sin issue. It's a matter of the heart and so forth and so on. Uh, but, but what I don't understand is why we fall for it. We are so uh, divided and sitting down at the same table mm. and listening to one another's stories. Because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, most most African Americans are very conservative. Mm-hmm. It's my upbringing, and so we've got so much more in common than than, than different. But if we allow political parties to define mm-hmm. us yeah. and not and not God's word, then we'll become uh, increasingly more polarized. And and I believe, according to John seventeen, that makes that makes God the heart of God uh, mm-hmm. uh, vexed. 
because his prayers that we will be one. Yeah. Oh, that's really good stuff, Ricky. Ricky Brown, you're hearing from the pastor of New Creation Church in Chicago. And we are really grateful that Ricky is going to join us for another segment right after this break here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined for another segment by the pastor of New Creation Church in Chicago, uh, Pastor Ricky Brown, uh, who in the first segment we learned is a lover of, of lasagna. So uh, we've all got that in common. So, uh, Ricky, I'm wondering, as we continue to talk about uh, next steps, what do you see as the next steps going forward for our culture, but also for the church? Well, um, right now, <laughs> I don't mean anybody, uh, uh, you know, hard by this, but right now, uh, white evangelical Christians are reaching for, for black pastors like the NBA draft. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I gotta find somebody That's to right. talk to and break this thing down for me. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. what, what if, what if the aggressive nature in which uh, uh, to our listeners, you who are pastor, community leader, uh, principal, uh, CEO, were to use the same level of tenacity uh, until we see this thing solved. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, what do the pictures at your children's birthday parties look like? Right, mm-hmm. right. How, how how do we truly, you know, for I mean, I mean, I'm a pastor. I dare not pastor a multi-ethnic church until I live a multi-ethnic life. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's really where the rubber uh, meets the road. We, we must, we must uh, come together. Here's why and how. I, you know, I, my, my parents both were heavily involved in missions and so no credit to me just because of who they are. I preached in Chile, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru, Honduras, Jordan, Turkey, Dominican Republic, Ghana. And you know what I found out? Every single one of those countries had people in it. Hmm. <laughs> Every single one of them. That's right. And, and you know what I saw? I saw that the father in Chile, when he gets up in the morning, he's thinking about what type of quality of life he'll provide for his daughters and his sons. That's right. Mm. When I looked at uh, the, the, the craftsmen, the different people in Dominican Republic that make different things, they take just as much pride in their work in constructing something with what they have and the and level of skill and training that they've received as we do when we stamp that flag on something and say made in America. Mm. And so we're all a part of the human race. And I just think it's interesting that as Christians, we can go on mission trips and feel great about ourselves because we uh, had a, you know, opportunity to impact the life of someone who's poor. But but how would you feel about having a relationship with the African American in your town that doesn't need you? Right, right. That that, there, that there's not a power a power dynamic there in the relationship. Right. Uh, because what happens is. We tend to view people based on our uh, surroundings. I used to work at Moody Bible Institute for the seminary there. And I'll never forget uh, 
there was a great uproar in this country about the death of Mike Brown mm-hmm. uh, down in down in Ferguson, Missouri. That's right. And I, my heart was that I'm thinking about it every day. I'm seeing the news, and all of my coworkers, with the exception of maybe two, were were white. And I'm talking about it in the office, and almost no one has a clue as to what in the world I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I'm like, it's all over the place, social media and everything. But but in their defense, watch this. We did a little experiment. I took out my phone, opened up the Facebook app. One of my white female coworkers did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, just tap your app. I'm going to tap my, my Facebook app. And let's scroll for 90 seconds. And let's see how many times the Mike Brown story comes up on your timeline wow. and how many times it comes up on my timeline. Wow. And she said, okay. So we said, one, two, three, go. We scrolled just for 90 seconds, a minute and a half. In a minute and a half, even though I have, I mean, you guys know this, I network with tons of white churches, have tons of white friends right. in my life. Uh, the story came up on my timeline 12 times in 90 seconds mm. from different people who I know personally, mostly people of color. Hmm. It came up on her timeline zero in 90 No kidding. So who our circle of influence is, the people we are around directly shape us. So when we, so for example, if it's raining on the south side and you live in Lincoln Park or Wicker Park, <laughs> yeah. and it's not raining and one of your friends say, man, the, the weather is beautiful here in Chicago today. Right, and someone else said, "What do you mean? It's 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 a torrential downpour. It's right. thunder and lightning. The skies are great. Right, but but your location, where are you located? Not only geographically, but where are you located socially? That's good. And and but all of that has to be informed uh, on where we are located salvifically, which is in the will of God hmm. in." relationship with them as a result of the work of Christ and Jesus Christ, we have to think about the fact that um, we mourn with those who mourn. We're slow to anger, quick to hear. And so um, by seeing that, I was like, man, how would you know? And so I said something to her that was very humble. I said, you know what? The Lord wanted us to work together so we could meet. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's all right. So I have like a million more questions and we don't have enough time to get to them. But what I do want to ask you, Ricky, is how then how do you avoid tokenism? Because like what you were talking about with the NBA draft, like cards on the table, that's a little bit of what Brian and I are doing with the show. Like we're realizing, all right, we're two white pastors. We we want to surrender a bunch of time from the show to just listen, to learn, because we realize you know, we got a lot of learning to do. We have a lot of repenting to do. We have a lot of reading to do. How How can people be intentionally multi-ethnic with their lives without it being like, well, now I have my token black friend or like now I have three posts on my Facebook feed as opposed to zero from a month ago. I guess I'm woke now. Like how, how do you encourage people to actually do that in a way that's faithful and honest and has like integrity to it? Here, here it is. I'm inviting uh, Ian, you, and Brian to my patio right now. You're getting a formal invitation. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, nice. You count me in, man. So, so that that's it. Uh, we could do ministry together over the phone with a with a radio interview, but but how often are we doing um, um, live together? That's right. See, here's the thing. 
Um, I made a call to John Peacock and Dave Ferguson and Dave Luke, Tim Harlow in. And these guys, within less than 24 hours notice, were in my den, in my house, on the south side, getting instructions mm-hmm. um, on and loading buses, getting ready to go march and protest uh, against uh, systemic injustice. That's right. But here's the thing. I've been to John Peacock's house. I've been right. to Dave's house. That's right. You see what I'm saying? So, so and, and beyond that, Dave, uh, we're, we're planning another barbecue here. Hmm. And, and, and John and I are getting on the schedule again. At, at the end of the day, we have, as pastors and leaders, we have to model it. That's right. And so when the next crisis happens, you don't have to scroll your timeline to see which black people you know. It's your right. friends that you just had over for dinner last night. That's right. That's right. And so um, that's that's really where it's at, man. I mean, um, so it, it is not, again, it's not just important that you and I do it, but if we, you and I don't do it and reap the benefit. Hmm. of the diversity of the body of Christ. We know what Revelation says about what heaven looks like, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Mm-hmm. But let's let the patio and the barbecue look like that now. That will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. So as you, as leaders do it, as we do it, then we can preach to the people that we lead about how they need to uh, love thy neighbor and everything like that and all that awesome stuff that the word says. But I think it starts with with, with leaders because as the priests do so do the people man that's good that's, that's so really good. good well you've been listening to ricky brown he's the pastor of new creation church in chicago and uh if you're just tuning in and you missed that interview we encourage you to go find it go get the podcast and listen back to that ricky thank you so much for joining us today yeah thank you brother appreciate that so much thank you guys for having me anytime always a pleasure our Thanks. pleasure and you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. I really appreciate you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, You can find us online at 1160hope.com and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. If you just missed our uh, interview with uh, Pastor Ricky Brown from New Creation Church in Chicago. So I would good. really encourage you to get so on the good. podcast or go to the website and listen to that. It will be well worth your time. Uh, we would encourage you to do that. Well, uh, a uh, tweet that caught my eye that I wanted to read and I found really interesting. But before we do that, Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about our friends at Thriven? Yeah, real briefly. So I've been a Thrivent member for like eight years. Thrivent, if you're not aware, is a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. They've been around for more than a century. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. I love them because it's sort of like really great money management, but also with like a Christian ethic, which is hard to come by, ironically. Also, though, uh, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a good place to check out. They have a bunch of different options, and you don't even have to have a background in finance uh, in any way, shape, or form. Also, they're hosting a bunch of really wonderful webinars from homeschooling to leading in crisis. And they have a really great event coming up next week that they're going to have a a, a premiere reading of a book. So we've been posting that stuff on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I highly recommend you go there and check it all out. 
So a tweet I read from, I'm going to butcher his name, but he's a great follow, a pastor in Queens, New York, Rich Velotis. Is that, am I getting that right? You think? Yeah, it's pretty phonetic. I don't, I think so. Okay. I have a thing with names. Uh, Rich Velotis. Let me read. He had a tweet, a, a Twitter string going on here, a thread. Uh, let me read it because when I read it, I was like, that is how I feel so much when I look at our political landscape and specifically with uh, some friends of mine or family or specific people in our, in our churches. I found this really interesting. I'm wondering what you think about it. So let me read the whole thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, the exhausting but important work pastors, and I'd say other, you know, all of us, but especially he writes in this pastors, uh, the exhausting important work we have is helping the people we lead move beyond enmeshment with the political figures they support. People are so enmeshed that it's hard to distinguish political figures from themselves. The domino effect of enmeshment looks like this. To critique the president or any political leader is to critique the party I align with. To critique the party is to critique the values I hold dear. Right. To critique the values I hold dear is to critique my vision of a flourishing world. To critique my vision of a world that flourishes is to critique my understanding of God. To critique my understanding of God is to cre critique me at my deepest center. It makes sense why people get defensive then when their political leader is criticized. So then, when the candidate you support is criticized and you feel deep anger and defensiveness, the question we need to ask is, why am I so defensive? Have I confused my core identity with the person and party I support? And he concludes this way. The painful truth of this is if a political leader is beyond genuine critique in your mind, the political leader has taken on a godlike status and there's a commandment or two that has something to say about that. Uh, so that's Rich Velotis, uh, church out in Queens, New York. I found that really helpful. I'm curious, Ian, the first time you read that, what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, we've done segments on this concept before. Um, I think it's it's definitely well said and has a a good like pastoral tone. Part of what I'm always wondering is, does reading this reveal for people? And I'll you know I'll turn it on us. Does it reveal to us where some of these enmeshments actually are, or does it even sometimes perpetuate when you read it and you go, yeah, yeah, so and so totally does have this problem, like. I wonder sometimes if it furthers like our conviction that that's what somebody else is doing <laughs> as, a, as opposed to sort of revealing in us like, oh, man, that that's why I get so antsy or angsty or angry when someone publicly or privately criticizes that person that I so align with. I think it's I think it's a really important discussion to ask. It is a difficult one, though, because you know, blindness to your own blindness is the most dangerous kind of blindness because you don't, you don't know that it's there, right? You don't know that your response maybe is disproportionate or that yeah. you've elevated a person or a party or even an idea higher than it deserves to be. Um, that is again, the nature of idolatry. You know, we tend to let ourselves off the hook because we, you know, we don't have golden statues in our house. So I'm good. in the idolatry front, you know, Keller talks about, it's like, no, just a good thing becoming a God thing when you've elevated it way beyond what it actually, you know, it's often good things. It's not like idolatry is often categorized like, oh, he's doing this awful, heinous, terrible thing. Like, no, often it's we make our family idols. We make political mm -hmm. leaders idols. We can even make our religion an idol. 
those are good things, but we've elevated them to an ultimate thing. And I think that's part of what he's getting here. And I, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. This idea of enmeshment, because for me, uh, it's interesting having dealt with some people. Uh, I asked two very specific people separately. Um, this one person is just an adamant supporter of president Trump. And I said, can you just tell me one thing that he's done that you disagreed with? Like, what's just one, just one in three and a half years where you think he missed the mark or you think he got it wrong. And this person said to me, I can't think of any of them. I can't think of anything. And I was like, Mm. okay. Mm. And then just not to put it on the Trump followers. I had the same conversation with somebody about president Obama. I said, Hey, when you think back to president Obama's presidency, can you think of anything you disagreed with anything that, you know, you had a problem with. And this person had gave the exact same answer. Other side of the aisle said, no, nothing really comes to mind. And I was so surprised by both of those responses. And it, 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 it did, it burdened me because I was thinking, and this is what this tweet helps me kind of categorize a little bit. Cause a lot of times I'll think of politics like sports. Oh, you just want to be on the winning team. You want your team to win, whatever. Uh, but really, uh, what this pastor is helping us see is for a lot of people, uh, once we start critiquing their leader that of the political party that they ascribe to, it's like critiquing them and their identity and their value and their belief set. And so it's no wonder that people defend so, so hard, but I, I totally agree with him that if, if you can't critique the, uh, the man or the woman that you vote for, that you follow, uh, if you can't ever point out, like there's a problem there, um, with this one decision or one thing, th- then you are treating that person with a godlike status. I think this gets at a lot of what I see going on. Um, you did, you did throw it on us. Where do we, where are we guilty of this? I don't appreciate you doing that, but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but this did, when I read this, it did help put into kind of some structure for me, what I see going on politically that I haven't really been able to understand around me. Well, so how do you tackle it then when it comes to the issue of faith? Because I, yeah. I think that pastors and denominations and, and people of faith can do the exact same thing. Not that we shouldn't have, I mean, the, the Bible literally speaks to things that we should put our confidence in, but is it possible that sometimes our confidence actually isn't in the cross? It isn't actually in the resurrection. It's in our particular interpretation of every verse in the book of Romans along with our very, very airtight Pauline theology and our views (laughs) on polity and governance. And and again, I I think that denominations and the rich diversity that we see, I think in a lot of ways that can be a really good thing, but don't don't you feel like it sometimes, well, now, now you're challenging God in my mind and uh, I'm not comfortable even having a discussion or being open to the possibility that I might be wrong on this one area of nuance because of how strongly I'm enmeshed into it, you know? I think you're a hundred percent right. I think we, we often take the minors or the things that could be disagreed about and take them as uh, essentials uh, politically, spirit, or religiously, whatever else it might be. And then we start just finding the people who agree with all 10 points of this with me and I'll be with them sure. uh, instead of being willing to have debate. And so we're going to put this tweet thread up on our Facebook page. It's already there. And we'd love for you just to comment on that. Let us know if you think he's right or uh, is he off here on something? I think for me, Uh, There's a lot there that I tend to agree with. Well, coming up next hour, uh, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and then have another pastor that we're going to talk to for a while. So we're excited for that. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the coronavirus, and then we're going to be joined by the Reverend Dwayne Davis, pastor of New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church right here in Chicago. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, thankful that you're joining us today uh, on this Wednesday. Oh, I haven't yelled hump day yet. It's hump day. Glad that you're joining us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk online, 1160hope.com. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. And again, we've been saying this the last couple of days. We have had so many uh, wonderful pastors join us uh, over the last, I'd say, two weeks that if you haven't heard them, go get the podcast, listen to them. Uh, you will uh, be better for it. So we'd encourage you to do that. Uh, all right, Ian, there's a topic that I've wanted to jump in. We haven't talked a ton of coronavirus over the last couple of weeks, uh, but I want to discuss specifically the coronavirus uh, in light of <clears throat> all of uh, the protests that have been going on. A lot of stats came out today. There are states that are starting to see spikes again, whereas the state of Wisconsin had yesterday zero deaths for the first time. Our state of Illinois had their lowest number of hospitalizations since this all started yesterday. Um, there was a, I, I saw a survey that was on CNN today that said 50% of the people said they'd go back to regular life right now, and 50% said they wouldn't. So we're pretty divided down the middle. Hmm. And uh, I want you to listen to, uh, this is a couple days old. This is from, I believe, Face the Nation on Sunday, uh, an interview that went on with Scott Gottlieb, who is a leading doctor, uh, and he has been somebody who's been very outspoken during this coronavirus pandemic. So listen to this. Dr. Fauci, in an interview uh, on Friday, said that these protests are a perfect setup for the spread of the virus. So even though these protesters are young and wearing masks, you believe this will ignite more of an outbreak? Well, look, we're certainly going to see transmission coming out of these gatherings. There's no question about that. The prevalence in the United States of infection right now is about one in 200 people. So you can estimate how many people probably have the infection um, in these gatherings. I think the, the, the idea of reducing the risk um, from these protests is a shared responsibility. There's steps that the protesters can take, and you see many of them wearing masks in these protests and understanding the risks. There's also things authorities can do, I think, to reduce the risks in terms of how they de-escalate these situations. The best science we have on this question comes from a recent study that came out of Germany, where there were large gatherings in Germany in a small region there, and they looked at what the spread was coming out of those gatherings. Now, mind you, these were festive gatherings, but there were large outdoor gatherings nonetheless. And the science showed that there was about a two and a half times increase in the rate of transmission as a result of bringing people together in large gatherings. So we have some scientific basis to understand that these, these kinds of settings do create risk. And, and these protests are happening in places that are largely hot spots, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C. Uh, I know Houston, Texas, where uh, George Floyd's body is going to be buried uh, in this coming week, also expects large crowds. What are you seeing in those places? Well, look, the protesters understood the risks, many of them. I think that's evidenced by the fact that they wore masks and they made a judgment that, um, you know, they were worth the risk in terms of going out and protesting what are legitimate underlying grievances. I think you're right. These are occurring in hot spots. We're likely to see cases go up. I think trying to tease out 
what the contribution is from the protests versus the contribution just of the general reopening is going to be hard. But when you look at cities like New York City, where cases have come down dramatically, you have below 100 hospitalizations a day right now. I think we're probably going to see an uptick. We're going to see an uptick in other major cities where there have been these protests. It's hard to judge just how much right now, and it's going to take a couple of weeks. We're probably going to have to get a few transmission cycles out to really judge what the impact was. I think what the protesters can do is try to take precautions, wear masks, yeah. distance where they can, um, and try to avoid you know, things like getting in contact with elderly people, people who are vulnerable after attending these protests. All right, Ian, I, I'm... Very curious your take on this idea of protesting, uh, the fact that we've all been kind of locked in for three months and trying to be really careful. But then even the epidemiologist said we support the protests uh, and kind of the anger that that made for some people. But yet we still want people to be able to protest. How do you unpack all of that for yourself? I, I don't. I, that you don't. No. <laughs> I've really struggled with it, to be honest with you. I've yeah, really understandably. I mean, even just today, we were talking about different articles we saw. We saw Wisconsin's numbers, and then you compare that to, like, Texas and California, and those feel like vastly different narratives. And and it is – it's really bizarre, actually. And, again, I, I don't know why I'm totally surprised. And, again, Wisconsin, California, Texas, these are not uh, exact replicas of each other. There's a lot of factors at play. It, it was one of my first thoughts when you first started seeing the protest you, yeah. and you saw a lot of people, you know, not distancing, not wearing masks. And your thoughts were like, is that is is this going to be ultimately safe? And then you and then I feel guilty for even thinking that like, well, yeah, right. but if it's time to protest. It's time to protest. But then on the other hand, you see some of these numbers and some of these reports and we're going to see them continue as the protests continue. Um I don't, though. I don't know how to unpack it, to be honest. Like, it feels this feels like a real tricky way to begin the second hour because I don't have a lot of, like, <laughs> wisdom or insight. Not that I ever really do, but this in particular has me sort of a little baffled. I mean, even just, you know, my wife and I got a, a lunch out a couple of days ago. Grandma came over and watched the kids. And so we were in Naperville and we took all the precautions and we're wearing our masks and we're staying distant. And about half the people were doing the same. The other half, it was just like a regular Saturday in Naperville. And I thought, oh boy, we are all reading news from different places right now. So it's, yeah, it is. It's a really, it's a really tricky time for sure. Yeah, it is uh, just state to state, but like you said, also town to town. And what surprised me last week, and I, I really wrestled with, I had a great talk with my brother-in-law about this, is when the epidemiologist came out last week, like with, um, uh, with a, a statement that like a hundred epidemiologists, some of the leading epidemiologists signed, and they're all the ones who've been saying, you can't go out, you can't go out, you know, stay. And we've all been listening. Uh, and they're the ones that said, we support, like they felt the need to come out and say, we support people's ability to gather together. And, and, and I'm with you, man. I want to be like, yes, I want to support the first amendment. I want people to protest. Like it feels right. People should be doing this at the same time. It feels like, uh, epidemiologists are the ones who've been said, no, the virus must, must, must take, um, take precedent over everything else. Because I do, I do struggle like the cynical view of people who go, then why, why would I ever stay in next time you tell me to stay in when you say this one's okay, but this one's not like, I don't even know if it's fair to have that thought. I'm with you. I'm just kind of all kind of tied up with it, but it does worry me. Like, okay, we just turned it off all of a sudden, and now what's going to happen next? 
It feels like there's, I don't know, maybe this isn't helpful. If if people, if they feel like, no, I, I need to be out there protesting, then they should be honest with anyone else they come in contact with. They, hey, before we hang out or before we, I just need you to know that I, I have been protesting. And then people can make their own adult decisions. I mean, that feels to me like, hey, just so you know, I've had uh, grandma and two babysitters over the house last week. Like, okay, I'm actually not comfortable with that level of exposure. So maybe I'll see you in a month or I'm fine with that. We did the same. It is interesting when you talk about these bubbles, you know, 10 at a time. And we did a couple articles last week or the week before. You know, some people see that as just 10 groups or a group of 10 anytime you meet. I'm like, well, it can't be 10 different people each time, though, because those numbers start to exponentially rise. But I don't know. I I do tend to think, yeah, just be honest about your level of exposure. Don't be, you know, don't lie about that to someone else. Like if you have been in these crowded areas and maybe didn't take the precautions you should have or felt you needed to. I don't know. I feel like adults can, can make those decisions themselves. Yeah. It's just that we haven't been making those decisions for ourselves. So it does still just kind of feel weird, but uh, we'd love to know what other people think because we are kind of, it does feel like if for nothing else, we've reached a point where people are just kind of, some people are done with it. (laughs) They're just done with it and going to go about their day while other people are really strict. I had somebody say to me, uh, in my church, why can't we start meeting just normally if there could be 10,000 people at a protest? And you're like, I get it. I understand what you're saying. Let's have this conversation. So uh, we would. I know this is. What about that do you get, though? Just the optics of it. Like, hey, we're being we're being told we can't meet for X reason, but then it's OK. The epidemiologists are the ones that say don't meet. But then they say you can gather to protest. Like, that's why I was just surprised at epidemiologists. And I understand why people protest. Hmm. Um, it's another thing to have doctors come out who are the ones who've been saying, don't do it, who now are like, but in this case, it's okay. Yeah, but we've had, doctors, get, we've had doctors on both sides of this since it began, though. But not the epidemi- not these epidemiologists who signed this paper. They are the ones who are like, lockdown, lockdown. But right now, we get people's First Amendment right here. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I get the people who are going, hey, that's really confusing. So therefore, you know, I'm going to be a little skeptical in the future. I think that's the danger of all of this. So mm. uh Coming up next, we are thrilled to be joined by Dwayne Davis, Reverend Dwayne Davis, the pastor of New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago. He's going to join us for two segments next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, One of the things Ian and I have been saying over the last two or three weeks is uh, just how much we have enjoyed and been blessed by having a conversation with pastors uh, throughout the Chicagoland as we all just kind of wrestle with what's been going on in our world. And uh, with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined by Reverend Dwayne Davis from the New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church. Reverend Davis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, uh, Brian and Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, the the pleasure is all ours. Could you uh, just introduce yourself to our audience, however you see fit? Okay. Well, as he said, my name is Reverend Dwayne F. Davis, Sr., I have served the New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church on the west side of Chicago just this past May 11th for 19 years. Wow. I was, yeah, I was born and raised right across the street from Garfield Park on 127 South Central Park. They've since uh, taken that building down, but it was right next to uh, Providence Saints Mill High School. And so my life has come full circle of being a child raised on the west side. Now I'm pastoring in the same neighborhood. 
I've been married now for 34 years, this coming June 26th, if mm. I got that right. I hope my wife is listening. She won't break the law. <laughs> 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 I got it wrong the other day. But I've been married for 34 years, raised five children. They're all grown. And um, I just enjoy doing what I do as a shepherd of God's people. Uh, here's a little note. I was born 1961, right in the middle of the civil rights movement. No, I remember really. as a child of eight years old after Martin Luther King got shot and the riots started, I remember literally tanks coming down my street wow. with, uh, they declared martial law and tanks coming down the street. And as a little kid, I didn't discern what was going on then until I got a little older and I reflected on that moment. And I realized what was happening, you know, historically. Wow. I, I just saw a comment from Dr. Perkins a couple of days ago, and he made he made the statement. He said, I have not seen anything like what I'm seeing right now in my entire life. As someone who's been in Chicago your entire life, how does the city look or feel differently now than it did when you were a young adult or when you first started pastoring? Like, how have you seen the city of Chicago sort of change over the years? Well, certain pockets have changed. They've done some renovations. Some businesses have been established. But it never fully recovered from the 60s riots. If mm. you were to ride down Madison Avenue or Roosevelt Road, those places never recovered. However, they were coming along slowly but surely. But now there's been a major setback, and we don't know if it's ever going to recover back to the way it was or mm. back mm. to the way that it should be. Mm. Could you tell us more about it as you talk about the setback over the last couple of weeks? Just kind of paint the picture for people. Well, as a pastor on the West Side, uh, almost half of my church, uh, maybe up to three quarters of my church, live on the West Side of Chicago. And once the rioting started happening, everyone was just appalled or wouldn't think in our lifetimes that we would see something like this. Hmm. And then having talked to members that were literally in the middle of the mayhem, you know, fearing for their lives, but then trusting God at the same time. The next day, the aftermath, there were so many businesses torn apart, um, vandalism everywhere. But within 24 hours, everything was kind of cleaned up. So it it didn't look like a war-torn zone. But that quick memory and then, you know, media constantly plays the images. So they're ingrained, you know, in our psyche. I told a friend of mine the other day, I said, what you see and what you hear can control your being and your mentality. Hmm. And now black America has more images and visuals to reinforce uh, the oppressiveness that many of them feel. However, some of those images and sounds were not necessary to begin with. Hmm. So you're, you're a pastor and a leader and Brian, Brian and I are both pastors out here in the suburbs. And it's certainly like I've, I've heard a number of pastors say the last few weeks, they didn't teach us this in seminary. Like what's happening in our world. I don't have a, a book to pull off the shelf. I don't have any, any training in this. How are you navigating this specifically as someone that other people are looking to for leadership, for wisdom, for insight into how to, you know, take steps forward? How, how are you navigating that personally? Well, first of all, I would say that Although shocking, it didn't surprise me because I knew something was brewing underneath the surface and eventually it will erupt. Mm. 
Hmm. However, being a pastor of the church and in the middle of the scenario, I've had to address the issue head on. You know, right. there's no need for me mounting the pulpit or now right. <laughs> online talking about Jonah in the belly of fish, you know, when the whole neighborhood has been ransacked. So we have to, you know, preach and teach and live out the issues and, and bring it to the forefront. Hmm. And that's one of the things that I did. Uh at the foundation of it, I remind my congregation that, you know, we have three citizenships. First of all, we have a citizenship that's in heaven. That's our real identity at the core of our being now that we're saved. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ by faith in his finished work alone. I believe the Bible is, is his inherent word. I'm an adopted son of God, just like you are if you're saved in any other race or color. So we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's our heavenly citizenship. But then we also have the citizenship in the United States of America. We're bound by its constitutions and its laws and its processes. And so that's two citizenships. But then personally, I'm a black American citizen of the United States Mm. with a particular culture, with certain biases and a worldview that begins at my address. And so what my job and other pastors' job should be is to address those three issues and help people to navigate mm-hmm. on which front do you now apply the word of God and how does that look? Mm-hmm. So we have Wednesday night online Bible study. We converted from meeting at the building to online and I created a two part series so far. Tonight would be the second part of uh, talk it out, walk it out. Mm-hmm. We talk about the issues. We let people share how they feel. But then we apply biblical principles on how we ought to walk that out personally and then how we ought to walk it out in our community to bring about some kind of change, you know, and not allow things to just be as they were. Let's turn a corner and start something new. Uh, And this might be a hard question, but can you paint the picture for what that change and what that new you're praying for, what that would look like? Well, let me just start out by saying this. there was one issue that started all of this that wasn't really a new issue. But since this issue has come up, just say that that's the primary megaphone. Mm. There are 25 megaphones now. People are talking about all kinds of issues that have erupted out of that one issue. And so, so many issues have to be addressed. That's the policing issues, that's the economic issues, there's the education issues. Issues that have been there for the longest, but now it's been amplified. Right. Uh, Wow. To try to deal with every voice coming from every megaphone will take time. Mm. But I would say immediately on the ground level, there has to be some changes in the way the police interact with African-Americans and people of brown skin. Mm. There has to be a change in ownership allowing African-Americans and brown people to have ownership in businesses in the community, uh, having access to the balanced education that everybody else around the world gets. And, you know, we get substandard education, which doesn't prepare a person's mind and um, worldview to engage this current society. I'll give you a personal testimony real quickly. I graduated in 1979 from Western House Area Vocational High School. And immediately from there, I went to U of I. 
And I have to tell you guys, when I opened up those textbooks in college Hmm. versus what I learned from my elementary education to my high school education, I was very ill-prepared. I was like in the middle of nowhere, knowledge-wise, not understanding what I'm reading because I was ill-equipped to make that transfer from where I was to where I needed to be. And so Mm -hmm. I had to work extra hard. I had to go resource myself and go back and learn some things that I should have learned on an elementary level. Hmm. So those are some immediate things that uh, we can do to to make some changes. That's great. That voice you're hearing is the pastor of New Morningstar Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago, Reverend Dwayne Davis. And he is kind enough that he's going to join us for another segment uh, after this break here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. We're thrilled to be joined for a second segment uh, by Reverend Dwayne Davis. He is the pastor of New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church uh, in Chicago. Uh, also the founder and executive director of Urban Outreach. And uh, again, Reverend Davis, thank you so much for staying with us. We were just talking off air uh, kind of at a, at, at a fun foundational level, just the importance of of uh, how white people view African-Americans and vice versa. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Okay. Well, we were talking about this one scenario where a uh, young black youth was spray painting something on the wall and he wrote on there, you know, white people don't like me. And so he was caught by a white officer. They arrested him for vandalizing property. He got a record and so on and so forth. But the question was never asked, well, did you read what he wrote? Mm. Did you ask him why he wrote that? Right. And one of the issues that is causing tension between whites and blacks is knowledge versus perception, fear, and so on and so forth. Last week on our call on our show online called uh, Walk It Out, uh, Talk It Out, Walk It Out, we talked about observations about some white people, how they treat blacks or how they uh, view blacks, which creates this undercurrent of hostility that black people have and white people don't understand. I'm just going to read some of them for you. Here you go. Some whites won't speak to you or greet you in return. Hmm. Whites profile blacks while they are driving or walking. Blacks cannot move into certain white neighborhoods. Hmm. When blacks enter stores, security cameras and security follow us around the store. White women holding on to their purses or huddling children close out of fear of an approaching black man. Whites tend to segregate themselves more in the workplace and in the marketplace. Mm. In public swimming areas, white tends to distance themselves from blacks or leave the swimming area altogether. Mm. Whites size up black people from an economic standpoint, inquiries about the job status and their salaries. Whites are uncomfortable with blacks having higher positions over them. Blacks are held suspect when they travel through white neighborhoods. Whites enjoy our culture, but don't celebrate blacks as a people. Mm. Successful white women romancing and marrying successful black men. Whites talk down to black people in disrespectful ways. Whites don't understand the black mentality, but they claim and act like they do. Whites feel blacks shouldn't have got should have gotten over the past mistreatments of slavery in the civil rights era. Wow. Whites don't understand mental slavery. 
blacks don't have the same quality of education and opportunities as white people. Then there's the digital divide, the lack of basic computer skills and ownership of technology in the black community. On an average, whites tend to exclude us from their celebratory events. Whites uh, exploit black issues by using our gripes as public discussions without any plans to change. White views of black women are less respectful than their white women. And lastly, black men are perceived as less intelligent and less capable of holding leadership roles. And the list went on and on. And this is what people was expressing. And that has been some of the undercurrent of things that were, you know, piling up the volcano before it erupted. Right. I'm thinking about the book White Fragility, which I just started, and it kind of dives into why it's so difficult for so many white people to even have a conversation about race. And I remember years ago, I was planning a series and I was planning on preaching about racism on Sunday. And the day before was the day the Trayvon Martin verdict came through. And I, I just mm-hmm. I couldn't believe I felt so underqualified to preach on this. But then that got picked up by a radio station. They asked me to do a segment. So I had a survey of our church asking about racism. And I remember in our little our little church being absolutely blown away by how vast the disagreement was that racism was even an issue. I had one anonymous comment that was, it's the biggest issue facing my family, and I thank you so much for talking about this. The very next comment was, racism is not even an issue anymore. Why are we wasting time in the pulpit talking about this? And I couldn't believe it. How do you, how do you, help, how do you help people understand, apart from you know them listening to what you just said or tuning into your show, how do you help people understand, see like the depths and complexity of this issue? Well, first of all, we have to understand, and I clarified it for our children. We had a children's Sunday and I had to do a sermon online. Hmm. One of the things I told them that all white people are not bad. Right, right. All black people are not bad. You've just got some bad people. Uh, we have ignorant people. They just don't know. Uh, the other day when a couple of movie stars gave uh, to the NAACP $200,000 to help deal with the issue. I got angry mm. because we don't need money. We just need respect and equality. Mm. And a, a lot of white people think that throwing money at the issue is going to make us feel better. Now it'll make some of us feel richer. It'll give us more property and things, mm. but it will never change the mentality. And this has been, most people call it a systemic issue. To me, it's a methodical issue. It's been ingrained in our constitution um, under the color of invisible ink that many white people understand the code, but many black people can't see it or don't understand it, but Mm. we feel it. Mm. So that's the disparity that's going on. And to me, for for real, it's the heart issue, a hatred racism, it's a sin. It comes from the heart. Jesus says from out of the heart comes this kind of stuff. Hmm. However, there are still those who are uninformed and then in actuality, some don't even care. And that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. And and if you would let me when before we get off this uh, show, explain the black responsive side of it, hmm. I'll speak to that as well because this is not just a white problem. It's a black problem as well, or shall I say, it's just a human problem. Mm. Well, let me give you the open door to go ahead and have that conversation. Why don't you keep telling us what you mean by that? <laughs> okay. What I mean by that is on 
the African-American side of things. Well, let me just start with opportunities in America. It's for everybody, white, black, green, yellow, red. It doesn't matter. What matters is who will take advantage of what has been placed before you. And if there are any barriers to it, will you be able to intelligently maneuver around it so you can take care of your own business as an American? Mm. Black people tend to live off the hurt of the past and saying that things have not changed. But a lot of black people don't feel that way. You've got a majority of black people who doesn't have the biggest megaphone that could say, you know what? I started in poverty. I took advantage of the opportunities. My parents were the wind beneath my wings. Or yes, I came from a broken family, but I took advantage of what was placed before me and when it made something out of my life. Having said that, there are those who didn't, and they're victims of a system that if you don't know how to utilize it, you become brutalized by it. And so there's the black responsibility of, okay, you want to talk about all the guys that have been killed by police officers, but what about black-on-black crime? What, what about the blacks that are killed by blacks? Why won't we march in the street about that? Why won't we stand up for the millions of black abortions that have been happening around the world? We've lost our moral compass in, in so many areas as an American society. This is just one of those issues, and it's in vogue right now. It's been in vogue, and I hate to tell you guys this, it's going to remain this way. There will be some few changes made here and there, but ultimately we are still African Americans living in a white world, trying to live within a system that wasn't designed particularly with our culture in mind, but the benefits are there if we go after them. Mm-hmm. The responsibility of blacks tearing up their neighborhood, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. And this new generation that had not been given the gospel, have, that have not seen a healthy nuclear family, that have not seen professional people living on their blocks, they're just all over the place. So there are so many layers of this issue. This one issue doesn't solve everything. This one issue is just in vogue today. I, I remember all of the ones in the past. And I told people, I said, it's not going to get better because it's a heart matter. And you can throw money at it. You can throw programs at it. But until the gospel, which is the life-changing agent, gets behind the man who owns the gun or the knife or the stick or the bat, murder is still going to happen. The gospel is not gun control. It's nature control. Mm -hmm. Because you don't control the gun you convert the man behind the gun. Mm. And that's when you'll see change. And we as a church, we have to remember our citizenship and the job that Jesus told us. But I understand this, and I'm going to bring my statement to a close. The world doesn't want to hear that the message of the gospel is the change agent that they're looking for. Mm. Because it requires repentance. It requires that mention of sin. I want to hear something funny. Yeah. Okay. George Floyd, they murdered him, right? One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. But also one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal. So the looters are committing sin as well. (laughs) The rioters are committing sin as well. It all goes back to sin. 
And what can wash away the sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I can't speak to all the issues, but I know one thing. The gospel still works. And that's what we have to get out there. I'm a proponent for protesting in peaceful ways. But a hundred pastors on a hundred corners praying, I've never seen that enact any kind of change whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to get out there and pray with other guys because evangelism is what works. Unless you're going to pray first and then go take the gospel to the street. Uh, One thing we do, we cancel our Wednesday night Bible studies in the summer, and we have all of the people of the church trained in evangelism, and we go throughout the Garfield Park neighborhood talking to people about Jesus, showing them the way, and they are hungry for the gospel. Well, that's been Reverend Dwayne uh, Davis from the new lead pastor of New Star, uh, sorry, New Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church. Reverend Davis, we are really grateful for you taking the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm, thank you all so much for having me. Hope to be back on again. You guys are a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We, we will take you up yeah, on that. So. Uh, you've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing. And if you're new to the show, you don't know what that music means because we haven't done it in about a week. But it's something we call interweb insanity, where our executive producer, Keith Conrad, he goes and finds crazy stories from the internet. And then we read them sight unseen. And uh, that's what we're going to do here. And uh, Ian, I'm glad to have it back. So why don't you start us off? Sure. I think you might be in the minority of people happy to have it back there. (laughs) I think they're all excited. We're all excited. All right. This one's out of New Jersey. Breaching whale crashes into boat, sending men overboard. A humpback whale off the New Jersey coast landed on a boat, tossing two men overboard and causing the vessel to become beached. Witnesses said the whale was breaching Monday off Seaside Park when it collided with the boat, sending two men into the water. What a nightmare. The men who were not injured, uh, the men who were not injured were able to climb back onto the boat before it beached, the witnesses said. Police said beachgoers helped the men secure the boat and retrieve dropped items from the water. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Seaside Park, I grew up going there. That was my beach. Wow. Oh, we should have done this in reverse. You did my home state, and I'm going to do yours. Michigan. Oh, boy. Missed opportunities. Company announces daily, nightly trips to Mackinac Island in on pirate ships. I'm sorry. I got to stop you there. It's Mackinac Island. Oh, yeah. I knew that. Sorry. I, the sea <laughs> caught me. Mackinac Island. I knew that. I've never been there, but I knew that. Uh, a Michigan ferry boat company announced it will offer daily and evening trips to Mackinac Island on what appears to be an actual pirate ship. The company's pirate ship, Good Fortune, will take passengers to Mackinac Island from Mackinac City five times per day during peak season. It will also offer a special nightly cruise that sails under the Mackinac Bridge in the evening. Company officials said that the ship has water cannons for children uh, and a bar on nightly cruises. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. That actually sounds pretty cool. It really does. All right. Uh, Italy, my home country. Uh, We'll be back. Italy prison escapees promise to return. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Two inmates who escaped from a prison in Rome last week left guards a courtesy note saying they had business to take care of but would be back shortly. Newspaper reported on Tuesday. The two cousins, oh, of course they're cousins, uh, Devad and Lil, broke out of 
Lil is the name. Is that right? Okay. I think it's Lil. Yeah, it's good. Broke out of Rebibia prison overnight on June 2nd by scaling a wall under a water hose left in the courtyard. Oh, classic water hose escape. How silly. <laughs> but before they escaped, they left a note in their cell explaining they had personal reasons for needing to flee. They were uh, they were driven by, quote, the need to protect their children. Oh, from a nasty business they had gotten themselves into, the Daily said. The inmates specified that they could only make things right as their wives were also both in jail. Get busy living or get busy dying. The next one is also out of Italy. Burger King telling social distancing Whopper in Italy with three times the onions. Oh, boy. That, that didn't make sense. Burger King selling social distancing Whopper in Italy. Okay, I got it. <laughs> Burger King hopes onion breath will help customers in Italy maintain social distancing as their new social distancing Whopper includes three times the regular amount of onions compared to a regular Whopper. Gross. The tagline for the new burger reads, a Whopper with triple onions to help others stay away from you. Other than the extra onions, the social distancing Whopper is the same as a regular Whopper. Excuse me, did something crawl down your throat and die? It didn't die! What a time to be alive, Brian. My yes. goodness. All right, Florida, lastly, boy, five hits hole-in-one at Florida Golf Course. What? Five? Oh. Hold on. Like a putt-putt thing? A five-year-old oh. boy's golf skills are being celebrated after he hit a hole-in-one at a popular course in Florida. Did you already see this? I saw a video of it, yeah. It's it's real? Yes. yes. William Kelly 5 sank a hole-in-one on hole 13 at the Bridges at Springtree Golf Club in Sunrise. Is that a city? During his golf clinic Friday. I hit a seven iron, William told WPLG TV. <laughs> it took two bounces off the fairway and one bounce off the green, and then it hit the flag, and then it went in. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! Well, some of us go our entire lives wishing for a hole-in-one, and he got one at the age of five. So it's Good all man. downhill after that. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, so hope-filled, Brian. <laughs> well, we're glad that you joined us today. We're specifically thankful to two pastors, Ricky Brown and Dwayne Davis, for giving us their time today. Yeah. And uh, we are grateful that you've given us your time as well. Join us tomorrow, Thursday, from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.